today's episode of Future Says, we have James Kappa, founder, CEO, and chairman of Altair. He's held this dual role since the company's inception in 1985. He's transformed the company into a 3,000 person firm with more than 86 offices in 25 countries, as well as over 11,000 customers at the convergence of engineering, simulation, and AI. Hello, and welcome to Future Says, Jim. Great to have you on the show for this season finale. Thank you. So over the course of season two of Future Says, Jim, we've had seven episodes featuring many opinion leaders from different industries, from different geographies, with different perspectives. We talk about the trials and tribulations of artificial intelligence in 2021 and beyond. We've had Sahara Sadi from King talk about MLOps and the importance of scaling AI in a company the size of King with 255 monthly active users. We spoke to Maria Acente from PwC, who spoke a lot about model explainability and the importance of regulation in this new digital world we're living in, especially in consideration with the European Union's new AI Act. We spoke to Niraj Parihar and Ming Tang, Niraj from Capgemini, Ming from the NHS here in the UK, who spoke a lot about culture, leadership, the importance of diversity and inclusion. We've heard about some of the next generation use cases and very exciting applications like autonomous driving with Vanessa at Sensact, like decentralized finance and cryptocurrency with Nikita at Fasinar Capital. And we've also heard about Google's vision for this confluence of artificial intelligence, high performance computing and the cloud, which was told by Bill Magro, their chief technologist. So it's been a very insightful season. You can obviously catch up all of the episodes on the landing page as well. But now I'm really interested to hear Jim's unique perspective as the CEO, chairman and founder of Altair. So Jim, the first thing I'd like to ask you is to pick up on Bill's point on this confluence of AI, HPC and the cloud. What is your vision for the future of these technologies? I think honestly that Altair has been talking about these things much longer than many other many others in industry and many other companies. I really think we came at it in a very evolutionary way and not a revolutionary way. So if you know Altair's history, we came into the market really as a very small player in the Detroit automotive market, essentially uh, doing consulting work in the mechanical simulation area. And we we really entered with a first product which took advantage of a lot of new technology, much larger memory machines, really bringing all of the models into memory and, and being able to have very, very high performance graphics. And that was really the first innovation, if you will, that, that Altair brought to market. After that, we brought several other innovations, I like to say, but many of them, in fact, most of them seem to relate to sort of these inflections with computing. So we started with simulation, and along the way, we began to see that everything we were doing was driven by parametric studies, optimization, this sort of thing. We were always very in touch with computing, the hardware computing, and how it related to the software that we were building. And we recognized that this move was being made in HPC from very specialized hardware to basically these commodity clusters and at that moment, we recognized it's going to be extremely important to manage the scheduling of jobs running on there, especially if you want to run a thousand parametric studies or do a design of experiments or, you know, or response surface based analysis. 
And so we began looking at the technology for that, ultimately spinning a team out of NASA. And so now we were sort of deep into HPC and simulation. We were really understanding all of the nuances around that, staying very close as GPUs were coming on stream, as different technologies for networking were coming on stream and managing all of that. And along the way, we were going to these supercomputing conferences. You know, every year there's a a supercomputing conference, one in Europe and one in the States. And what I noticed was this transition from, it was all simulation, and it's a lot of universities that are attending these conferences usually with booths showing whatever they're working on, whatever is hot. And the transition from just simulation to now analytics AI, machine learning, that whole area of technology just started to take off. And you really saw it firsthand at these conferences. And so I began to realize that there's something happening here. You know, we had simulation and HPC clearly very connected, but now you had data as well and just began thinking about that. And in late 2008, I acquired a little company out of Italy that was doing basically business intelligence software. It was sort of my first little baby step. And it really is the way Altair has grown. We're a learning culture, I think. And and I'm a learning, you know, my personal culture is very learning. And so with that acquisition, which was quite a failure, by the way, (laughs) in most regards, you know, financially, it was kind of a failure. We had a lot of challenges with people. But we learned a tremendous amount with all the failure, and that that is how you learn. And so there again, we began to evolve that idea that there's more and more data coming, right? More and more sensors are coming into the market, and also the ability to create our own data. And so we really saw that vision. And I, and I think as the market now is embracing that more broadly, and everyone is talking about digital twins, digital twin this, digital twin that. I mean, digital twins are essentially what Altair has been immersed in for 35, 36 years, right? We're building simulation models, which really capture the physics of whatever it is that you're modeling. And now with data analytics and machine learning, reduced order models and neural nets, you're actually building these reduced order simulations as well. And and it's bringing all of that together. And of course, enabled by HPC, that is the future that we see and and envision that we think is really becoming explosive. So I see Altair really at the center of the future and just really excited about our ability to continue to evolve that. So it's evolutionary to me, not revolutionary. So I think that's one of the unique differentiators of Altair amongst other people within this market is that we have this sort of simulation background and creating, as you said, more data, creating synthetic data to feed some of these digital twins. I wanted to dig deeper into that and maybe other application areas that Altair generally get involved on, general use cases. So, I mean, the history for the company, obviously, is in the manufacturing sector. So, you know, we started in automotive in Detroit. We, you know, evolved out of that to be very international automotive. We went all around the world very, very quickly. And then aerospace has become a very big market for us. Heavy equipment, everything manufacturing, consumer products, consumer electronics. Through the years, we've grown from mechanical to a lot of electronics, electromagnetics, all of that. So that's our core of our business, of course. 
And then with the acquisition of DataWatch, we really suddenly opened a world to ourselves that was all about financial services, banking, healthcare to a large extent. And of course, the HPC piece had already brought us into markets and energy, life science. Most of the pharmaceutical companies are customers of Altair, many government agencies that do fingerprint matching and other secret stuff are using high-performance computing. So, Jim, as you said, we have a lot of technologies here at Altair. I think one application area which combines all of these, I'm actually going to a conference tomorrow on it, is Smart Factory. We have robotic process automation. We have simulation digital twins. We have real-time monitoring. We have machine learning. We have AI. We have sensors. We have IoT. Especially in that space, this convergence of all of these technologies is increasingly interesting and increasingly happening. But with acquiring so many companies, Jim, I'm sure that's very difficult from a sort of cultural perspective. So I wanted to ask about, you mentioned earlier, the learning culture you've developed. Can you speak a bit more about that? I mean, I think it's all about listening and respecting people, you know, understanding where they come from, caring about them. And as a leader, you know, one of the things I often teaching to others that I, I think are leading is vulnerability. And that may sound surprising, but I think it is really important that you make yourself vulnerable. You know, you're, most people want to hide all their weaknesses <laughs> and sort of pretend that they are, uh, and, and sometimes that's important, but I think it's important to show your vulnerability when you're, when you're dealing with the people that report to you, that work for you, because they trust you and, and they want to have a sense that you, you put them actually first. And that is something that just comes very natural to me. So I, I think first and foremost, it's, it's about that. And, and I think that as I've acquired companies, most of the companies that I've acquired have been built by founders. And I relate to the other founders and those founders I know have a very hard time to give up their babies, right? And very often I'm competing with a larger company or whatever, but I think many of those founders trust me more and they should, by the way, because I really do have respect for what they've built, for the people, for their customers, you know, all the way around. And I do think that my team that has grown up with me and not just the very top leaders in the company, but throughout the world, as we built this company and, you know, spread the DNA of the company, everyone understands this idea of respecting people. You know, I always talk about when we acquire another company, we wrap our arms around the people and hug them, right? And we really try and understand the skills of everybody that's coming in. We don't just want to put our thumbs on those people and dominate them. Oftentimes, they're enormously talented individuals that we want to integrate throughout the enterprise. So I don't know if I'm answering your question completely, but culture is really, I think about listening and, and respecting people and having integrity with customers and with one another. One thing I will say, though, is I was listening to some of the previous talks and one of the things that I love, by the way, even though I'm 64 at this point, I started the company in my 20s, you know, I love youth and I love the power of youth. And I see, if you notice the things I'm doing inside the company, I'm trying to transform the company, make it even more diverse and make it more youthful for, you know, because I want this business to go for the next hundred years. And I think in order to do that, you really have to sort of tear it down and rebuild it all the time. 
and you have to embrace youth, if you will, in all that. On the other hand, I will say that a lot of the business culture today, which is a very youthful culture, and partially it's even more youthful with technology today because of the remote work, because of sort of this decentralized thing, you lose hierarchy. And the good thing about losing hierarchy is you trend towards more pure meritocracy. And I've always been a big believer in meritocracy. I used to promote somebody who was very young and less experienced way up and people would get, oh my God, why did you do that? Because you need to do that. You know, you really need to have a meritocracy and people need to respect that. So today, I think what's happening in the, in the world is sort of tearing down hierarchy a little bit and moving towards this pure meritocracy. The problem with it, and I haven't thought deeply about this recently, is that you have this sort of Facebooky thing where, you know, move fast and break things. And so I do think that this idea of risk and doing anything with wild abandon, the risks suddenly become maybe untenable in some cases to the company itself. But, you know, you can do harm to yourself if you go crazy, right? But you can do harm to society as well, to others, to whatever. And to some extent, there's not sufficient controls <laughs> if everybody's doing whatever the heck they want. And it's really, really challenging, I think, for the systems that are in place in society and in some companies as well to kind of control all of that. So um, it's a very, very dynamic moment. I wish I was 20 years younger because I still have the same energy I had 20 years ago, but people tell me I shouldn't. So I try to rein it in. But it's also with all that risk comes, I think, a lot of interesting challenges. So I'm going way off your topics here. But well, please talk about these challenges, especially I think the last, also I've been a company for plus 35 yeah. years. Have the last two years been as challenging as it's ever been? I mean, different challenges. I've been reading a book about uh, wartime CEOs versus peacetime CEOs mm -hmm. and that it's hard, you know, very few people are capable of doing both. And I've certainly been a wartime CEO. I think I've been a peacetime CEO, but, but there aren't that many moments that I feel that way. So I'm probably closer to a wartime CEO. And certainly the last two years have brought a different set of challenges. I think Altair was particularly well set for this because I've always believed in this idea of allowing people to work pretty much where they wanted to. So if you noticed, we've had development going on in 20 or 25 even different locations. Whereas a lot of companies, when they would acquire another company, they would force everyone to one of three development centers, this sort of thing. I have never believed in that. I've believed in, in this idea of you go where the ideas, where the intelligence is, you know, where the talent is. So we were really well set, I think, for remote work. I think we were also very well set because we had uh, developed this technology for Altair managing the licenses and so on our own servers. And actually, a lot of customers and a lot of our own sales guys had not embraced this, even though I had been pushing this idea because I think it's much, much better for both. And especially as we move to the cloud and you want to be able to use the licenses wherever. 
but the sales guys had been slower to embrace it. But as soon as COVID came in, it was clearly a fantastic solution because you basically didn't need to have all the VPNs out there. And, and so uh, it was just a great solution. Our customers could get up and running very, very quickly. And the customers you know, fully appreciated that. And that transition, that transformation, finally was accelerated. So I think because we were used to working remotely, we really got on that program pretty quickly. But I do feel, and some of this is my empathy of the people, you know, I had a really relatively great period. I went to California where I have a home where all my kids and grandkids are. I saw them frequently. So I had actually a very nice social life, but I really was feeling, you know, especially for the young single people who were holed up in apartments in Barcelona or in Paris, uh, I was truly, truly worried. More the mental side of it, I think one of the things you mentioned as to why Altair were quite successful over this period was this geographic diversity. You know, I think our revenue is pretty much equally split between the three big regions. So you spoke about that sort of geographical diversity. You spoke earlier about age diversity or diversity of opinions. How important is diversity and inclusion to you, Jim? Also, of course, on sort of more gender and racial topics. Yeah, you know, we have these four sort of values in our culture and, and they've been around for over 30 years. I mean, I espoused them right at the very beginning and diversity was right in there. And that might surprise people because today diversity inclusion is more the mode, if you will. But for me, first of all, I grew up in a European home in New York. My parents were immigrants from Greece. They spoke a lot of languages. Uh, they were Holocaust survivors. So, uh, you know, we were Jewish and we had some of those uh, issues going on. Dad worked seven days a week. I, if I wanted to see him, I went to work with him, actually. Uh, he had a little store in, in this Puerto Rican neighborhood. So for me, I, you know, I really believe that, that great ideas are coming from everywhere around the world. And I have a lot of respect for people because my parents, my dad spoke seven languages, was pretty educated, but because he had a, you know, he spoke pidgin English, he was not well respected. You know, and I saw that as a kid, how other people were treating him because he had an accent, all of that. And so for me, I, I just come kind of with this idea, this mentality that there are great ideas, there, there's great universities, there's original ideas and technology coming from everywhere and great thinking. And, and so diversity sort of been a mantra for me personally. I had four daughters and two of them are engineers. One is a lab animal vet who works with primates, you know, has been at Harvard and Caltech and whatever. And, you know, they're all very good in math and science. And of course I raised them that way, but I'm a huge proponent of women in tech and women should be having a much larger position. And I know from my own experience, my one daughter who was taking all the advanced classes in high school, math and, and science and programming, um, she came home crying one day from school because there were no girls in her classes. And actually, most of the kids were foreign born as well. And she didn't want to take these classes anymore because the other girls, girls are very mean, I learned, uh, the other girls were making fun of her because she was in these classes. And it makes you realize, and this is the same, by the way, for African-American kids, 
unless you have role models, unless you are seeing people like you that you're striving to be like. And so you sort of have to build the system. And I, I've been on the board of visitors at Columbia University where the dean, who's also on my board of directors, you know, Mary Boyce, really has been a great leader, I would say, from the point of view of bringing women professors in. You know, it's 51% uh, of the incoming classes the last several years are girls with amazing scores, brilliant young women. Uh, more and more of the professors are women at the university. And so she's built a culture sort of from the top down and the bottom up. And you get, again, this diversity of thinking because I'm sorry, but, you know, they're all coming from a different place <laughs> with a different kind of point of view. And, and so now you have diversity of cultures, diversity of cultures, because women and men sometimes are from Venus and Mars, and you want diversity also of skin color and religion and all of that. You want different ideas clashing together. That's the power, in my opinion, it's one of the powers of the United States in comparison with many other countries that are much more homogenous because you do have this clashing of cultures. So yeah, I'm a huge proponent of diversity and inclusion. So with this fully fledged diverse workforce, yep. Jim, what does the future say for Altair? What's happening in the next few years? I mean, for me, I think, as I said at the very beginning, I'm really excited about the future. I think the company is sort of standing on the precipice of a huge opportunity. We have the breadth of technology and the kinds of technology that we have absorbed and integrated into our organization, the culture that we have of experimentation and developing in the direction of, of where the market is going, envisioning where the market is going a bit and just carrying ourselves there. I just think we're in, we're in a great moment. As far as what I see uh, technology-wise, I see sort of this next revolution or evolution of computing hardware. You see quantum computing being heavily worked on, photonics, lots of new uh, interesting processing technology coming on stream, 3D IC chips that give you more and more performance. You see Apple coming out with its latest uh, you know, M1 technology. Apple working on autonomous and, and its own, you know, God knows what they're working on, but that's exciting. And so I think there's a next jump in computing that's going to sort of create the opportunity for software. And I think we have to spend a lot of time paying attention to that so that we can catch that wave and make sure that we're taking advantage of where that is going. At the same time, I, I think we're just at the beginning with the SmartWorks technology, which is this cloud native. We're, we're trying to bring together all the technologies that came from DataWatch that were mostly desktop technologies for data prep and data science. And we've added all this auto ML and explainable AI technology. And we're adding DevOps you know, into the code. And we have all of the capabilities to do IoT to create applications for IoT and to collect the data, to do the analytics on the data. So I think we're right at the beginning of this sort of next revolution and this bringing together of all the expertise that we have in simulation together with all this IoT 
and machine learning and AI technology is really this idea of simulating, if you will, or creating these digital twins uh, for almost everything that we that we work with or work on in society. And with every new wave, every evolution, every revolution, every transformation, Jim, as you said, if it's too much, societal harm might come into question. And that's one of the last questions I want to ask you. I don't want to go into this talk about AI taking over the world, but how do we ensure that applications use? I think we need to be responsible. You know, we when we're implementing technology and working with customers implementing technology, we do want to think about things from a common sense point of view and try and be responsible about it. And there is a whole learning that needs to go on there that we don't always anticipate the harm that, you know, may be done. And maybe it's it's very, very subtle. And I just think we have to behave in a very responsible way, in a very careful way, and step somewhat carefully. But we do have to continue to take risks. And so we may step a little bit the wrong direction. But when we do see that, I think we have to have the courage not to just think about the financial gain, but actually Mm -hmm. step back, make the adjustments. It's always that trade-off. If all you care about is money and growth and all that, in the end, I I think you're not going to be successful. I I really do believe the the good companies win (laughs) in the long run. And and, uh, I, I think Altair is an example of that. Yeah. I think sometimes the media outweighs the bad over the good as well. I think some of the applications Altair do, simulation softwares with, with data analytics are incredible around reducing the weight of, of cars and components and working in EV now with autonomous driving. What gets you excited in, in that particular domain, Jim, if you don't mind me asking? No, of course. Good leading question. So, I mean, Altair uh, very early on got involved in this area that we, we call topology optimization. And the whole concept is all around lightweighting. When you were designing components, historically you were designing them, you were over-designing. And very often they were being designed in the way they were designed in the past. And with topology optimization, you really start with a, a blank geometry, if you will, where you know what you're trying to accomplish with this design, where it's held, what the forces are, and it carves out these very efficient topologies. And it really lent itself to lightweighting because you end up with very efficient organic structures, very similar to how the world has evolved. You know, trees grow very organically so that they hold their structure right in a very efficient way. Humans and all things in nature have really grown in that way, but it's been millions of years to evolve these very, very lightweight organic structures. Um, And so when we're designing components, that was the same idea. And so we really pushed this idea of lightweighting. We created an award for it uh, that has become a very prestigious award. The technology that we released in the market, Optistruct, and then later the Inspire technology, and we've, we've made some attempts at estimating the savings. You can find it on our ESG site. But it's been a massive impact on weight savings and therefore CO2 uh, emission yeah. savings. And it's real. It's not just talking. I mean, that is that is yeah. real stuff. Um, and I think the same is, is going to hold true. All the, all the other optimization technology that we push has a similar impact on gaining efficiencies, you know, across the spectrum. 
And I think most of the uh, data analytics technology that, that we're bringing forward is going to have a very, very similar impact. I look at our lighting company. We have a lighting company. We have 150 patents for solid state lighting. And, and now we have smart lighting products and we're using our SmartWorks technology underneath it to build out the apps and, and to do all the data analytics. And there, you know, the goal, if you will, is to be able to say, this is how much power I'm willing to use. And I want to manage cost and I want to manage power consumption. And now the algorithms can go out. And if, if, if you're at that peak already and somebody goes into the bathroom to turn a light on, but you're at your capacity, you know, it can go across the building and take down tiny bit the light across the right, you won't even notice it because the eye doesn't perceive it. And now you have sufficient power to turn the light on or to run your HVAC system. So bringing this kind of optimization into society is super exciting. And oh, by the way, it should make us a lot of money. So we're very excited that we can do good and grow our yeah. business sort of in concert. So thanks yeah, very yeah. much, Sean. Brilliant. Brilliant. Jim, any final words of wisdom for the listeners? No, I just, uh, first of all, I appreciate all of our customers. I appreciate uh, all the people like you, Sean. I mean, everyone in the company, including you, I see them embracing what they do with a kind of passion that I, I just love to see. So thanks for all you do. And, and thanks to our customers that are listening. And, and I hope we, uh, uh, we get a chance to, to meet each other live soon. So thank you. Exciting time. Thank you so much, Jim Scappa, for joining the show. We'll have some show notes and we'll have a recap of all the great episodes this series on alter.com forward slash future says. See you soon, Jim. Thank you. Thanks to Jim and all of our other speakers on season two of Future Says. Maria, Nikita, Vanessa, Bill, Sahar, Ming and Niraj. Catch up with anything you've missed on alter.com forward slash future says and do stay tuned for season three.